I actually heard a story that somebody asked you to detonate a nuclear bomb. Is that true? This was in early 2000. And I said, you want to what? Uh -huh. And he said, yeah. He said, I just want to push a button on the most powerful weapon in the world. And I said to him, I guarantee I could pull it off. I could contact some people in Korea. I'd let him push it off. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, we just said, we're not doing it. We're not touching it. And uh, we walked away from it. Thank you for that. What kind of individual would actually want to do that? Like, where are they at in their life and in, yeah. in their mind that they were like, oh, I just want to blow up a nuclear warhead? Hey, if it had been in the world that we're in today, maybe I'd be making phone calls to certain people, but um, <laughs> you have to get a watch on this guy. But this was back in early 2000s when we still thought the world was all fluffy and friendly. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
the guy that can make anything happen. Now, that may sound like a cheesy one-liner for some over-promotional marketing guru that might want to get on Fox Business News, but there are legitimate people out there who are working behind the scenes, keeping a low profile, connecting with the world's wealthiest, most successful, and famous people with experiences and connections that they need on a professional basis, and we have got one of those guys on the podcast today. His name is Steve Sims, and he is a real-life underground connector running a company called Bluefish. For years, Steve has been helping some of the world's elite do things like have dinner at the foot of Michelangelo's David statue in Florence while Andrea Bocelli sings to them, scuba dive down to the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, watch Formula One racing in Monaco with royalty, experience the Olympic bobsled run, and the list goes on and on and on. He's the official concierge for the Grammys. He has worked personally with Sir Elton John and Elon Musk, spoken at both Harvard and the Pentagon twice. He has been labeled by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine as the real-life Wizard of Oz. He has published a best-selling book, Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen, documenting how he built a business on social currency. Steve's Black Book could arguably be one of the most valuable contact lists in the world. Steve Sims is on the show today. Let's rock and roll. Steve, how are you doing, my man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Good. Quite was a, that an intro? Was that a decent intro? Was it all right? Did it fit the It was bill? good. There was, only, there was only one thing in there that made me kind of go, oh, the if you scuba dived down to the Titanic, the pressure is so strong down there, you'd be thinner than a stamp. So we ah. sent you down in a small sub. So you sent so you sent the person or the people down in a sub to go see the huh? Titanic at the bottom Correct. of the ocean. Got yeah. it. Okay, I misunderstood that. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's just as that is just as cool as scuba diving down to yeah, the bottom. I so. <laughs> <laughs> just a mere technicality. You're still down there seeing it. Yeah. How far deep is the Titanic? It takes two and a half hours to get down there. Wow. Yeah. Do you know more people have been into space and at the top of the Everest than have ever been down to the titanic is one of the deepest it's not the deepest uh, uh depth of the ocean but it's one of them so let's just start off there how like if you somebody came to you and said hey steve i want to i want to i want to see the titanic i'm sure they saw the movie when they were young or something right and it's been a dream of theirs for years or maybe they were trying to woo their sweetheart where did you start where did you start to find the connections to get people to the bottom of the ocean well, it started there. Um, it started exactly as you thought. You said it. As soon as James Cameron started going down there frequently um, to film it, to scan it, you see there's research centers that send submarines down, and the submarines are tethered to a cable up to the uh, mothership, okay. uh, which is the Keldish, which is on the top of the... Uh, and there's this massive, massive long cable that the tethers this uh, submarine down. On the outside of this submarine is a million and one thermostats, cameras, grappling hooks, a whole ton of... It's, it's like something inside out. It's uh -huh. very, very messy on the outside. Now, the funny thing is, inside the submersible, it can carry three to four people. Okay. But they don't always carry people in it because there's no need to. But it does have fisheye lens in there, and so people can go in there. So quite simply, we said, look, it's costing you like a million bucks every time you go down there. Why don't we get some wealthy civilians to actually ride inside it and actually see it? And they were like, hell yeah. So I teamed up with a, a bunch from New Zealand uh, that were uh, registered explorers, and they helped us put it all together. And we started sending civilians down to see the wreck of the Titanic 
exactly at the time of uh, James was going down there so many times for the movie. Wow. And then I, I bet that's quite of experience. So it takes two and a half hours to get down. Imagine two and yep. a half hours to get back up, I would guess. And you're down there for about two hours. So if you've had a, if you've had a Vasily night the night before and <laughs> got a bit of wind, it ain't a good place to be for six hours. Does I say, is there a toilet in there? <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to be having a curry the night before. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> So these, these, I love stories like this. Like you mentioned in here, you built a business on social currency and um, because you were scrappy, I think high school dropout, is that right? Or college dropout? I kicked out of school at the age of 15. Okay. So kicked out of school at the age of 15. So you're just a scrappy young man um, and all you knew how to do or were natural at was connecting people, right? And so how do you define social currency? What is that? What does that mean to you? I'm not quite sure I was ever really good at uh, um, connecting people. I certainly wasn't smart enough to realize that's what I was doing back then. Okay. Um, I was the same as you. I was aggravated. Um, as entrepreneurs, we spend most of our life being pissed off until we realize what we were meant to do. As a young lad, you know, like at school, all entrepreneurs say the same thing. Oh, I couldn't concentrate at school. I could never focus because we're all over the shop we're waiting to be engaged and we're looking to be able to fit our skill set into something that we can conquer at so at school always in trouble never paying attention always in detention my mum just thought this kid's going to jail you know that's it's just going because this was back in the 80s where if you were an entrepreneur or a hustler these all had negative connotations mm-hmm. okay I remember getting the cane at school. I don't know what trouble I was in, but the headmaster would give me three cane uh, smacks of a bamboo stick across the palm of my hand. And the first one, it hurt. I started to tear up. The second one, before he hit me, he said, Sims, you're nothing but a hustler. Now, the funny thing is, he hit me twice more after that, but I never felt them because I remember the time going, and I can remember this vividly. I can remember where I was stood in his office at the school. And I thought, why is hustle a bad thing? Yeah. And it didn't make sense to me because by definition, you need your hustle on to get anywhere. Yeah. You know, move along, let's hustle. You know, it, it just didn't make sense to me. And let's be blunt. Someone knocks on your door tomorrow and says, hey, you're looking for facebook advertising you're looking for someone to decorate your house you're looking for someone to do an online course to speak at your event to put on your event whatever if they turn around and say hey you need me in your company i'm the best hustler you'll ever meet mm-hmm. you're employing them based on that yeah it was a time when it wasn't so i grew up bouncing off of walls not knowing what i was going to do riding around on motorcycles from a very early age built big and ugly so I didn't have money. I looked rough around the edges. I didn't have focus. I was all the bad parts of the cocktail. But I knew one thing. I didn't like being poor. Because I was poor, I knew what it was like, and I didn't like it. So I knew only one thing I needed to do. I needed to go to someone that was wealthy and talk to them. That was it. I just needed to have a conversation with someone that was wealthy. Trust me, I launched the world's first experiential concierge and the largest in the planet. I've worked mm-hmm. from everyone from the Vatican, Sir Richard Branson, Elon Musk to Sir Elton John. 
You've mentioned the Grammys, the Kentucky Derby, the New York Fashion. We think of something high end, and I've been well plugged into it. But I never wanted to do it. All I wanted to do was be in a room full of rich people to think, how do you think? How do you look at a problem? How is it that you're rich and I'm not? Because, hey, I'll work 27 hours a day. Mm -hmm. How are you richer than me? And that's all I ever wanted. So I just went out to try and get in rooms of, of rich people. And to do it, I started throwing parties and only inviting rich people. And the easiest way to invite rich people was to charge them $1,000 a ticket, which to go <laughs> to a party at night is a ridiculous thing. But it started off at 200 bucks, and I had like you know 80 people. Then I would sell it for 500 bucks, and I'd lose lose it down to like 60 people and then I'll charge a thousand dollars and then you just get 40 people. So I was getting less people, but they were richer. Uh -huh. And as we were speaking just before we came on air, quality entrepreneurs, keyword quality, no quality entrepreneurs. So you get five billionaires together. Guess who their friends end up being? So that's what I did. I started just, literally targeting after rich people and built the company up but it was nothing more than a trojan horse to get me having that conversation you know that's a that's a, a really good point you make because you know people are challenged with the idea of the wealthy stay wealthy the poor stay poor and the middle class stay middle class right and a lot of people think well the wealthy people should divide their money up and you know spread it amongst everybody else so we'll all be equal um, but that really doesn't work with human psychology because just like you mentioned, wealthy people know wealthy people and they want to do business with other wealthy people. Um, poor middle-class people know poor and middle-class people. And for the most part, they do business with them because they're their friends. And that's where their money, their income really stays. It's not until somebody like you who comes from a poor background says, I'm going to do everything I can to meet some wealthy people and then start charging wealthy people prices. And then I'm going to become a wealthy person and have a bunch of wealthy friends. Right. And, and you got to break through that whole mental, mental process of thinking, Oh, this is how I need to operate because I am poor middle-class and how I need to think because I'm wealthy. It took me years to start charging wealthy people prices, you know? And when I did like things got much easier, it's like, Oh wow, that's much, the clients are better. Um, they're nicer. Um, they're more committed. They're, they're willing to follow their money and do what they and follow through with everything. And it was just like, wow, it's easier to serve the wealthy than it is the poor middle class. And, um, you know, it's, it's could sound shitty to say, but at the same time, that's the reality of how it works. Would you agree? Oh, hell being poor stinks. <laughs> um, you know, I've been poor. I've been in bars where I've been able to afford two beers, maybe had a couple of cents left where we've all chipped in to buy another beer and then split it between you. There's nothing glorious or romantic or pretty about being poor. It fucking stinks. <laughs> no, but I don't understand why people settle for it. Yeah. I didn't settle. I was like, well, hang on a minute. I work just as hard. Poor was my financial position. It wasn't my ethos. It wasn't my word. It wasn't my bond. It wasn't what I stood for. It was a financial position. Mm -hmm. And I wanted out of that financial position. I knew I would work hard. See, the problem today is everyone's sitting there going, well, where's my handout? Oh, we've got a new handout coming from the... Where's my handout? Fuck your handout. Get off your ass and go and get it yourself. Yeah. People settle too much. 
I do a lot of coaching now to entrepreneurs in order to get them to dream bigger, aim bigger, and go bigger. And the first thing that I see is they build a product, and then the next thing they do is they build a pay payment plan. If you need a payment plan on your product, you've got the wrong freaking client. Do you think Ferrari are offering 0% interest rate on their cars at the moment? Mm -hmm. No. Do you think they're advertising on Facebook adverts? No. People don't need to do it when you go for the right client. And I've noticed that if I charge someone 200 bucks, they whinge and bitch at me for a fortnight. If I charge someone $200,000, they allow me to get the work done for them. Hey guys, real quick. Are you looking to grow your marketing and sales pipeline? Outgrow is a growth marketing platform that helps marketers create intuitive non-code tools such as calculators, chatbots, assessments, and quizzes. Outgrow's founders started by designing a mobile app cost calculator and quickly saw the power of interactive tools. So they built Outgrow so that any marketer and entrepreneur can build calculators and interactive tools to improve their customer acquisition. Today, you guys, Outgrow is used by over 5,000 companies and has a powerful builder with a wide range of embeds, over 1,000 templates, along with the analytics and integrations. It's designed for every modern marketer. It's pretty incredible. You can sign up for Outgrow at outgrow.co forward slash BM. That's outgrow.co forward slash B as in boy, M as in Michael. And start your free trial today. Now, let's hop back into the interview. Yeah, and you have more freedom to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. When did things start to really, when did you really conceptualize the idea that, hey, I can make this into a solid business? Because I think you were in Hong Kong for a while. Like, when did it click for you that, that this is something that I can do for the rest of my life or for the yeah, next I 10, laugh. 20 years? I laugh because it didn't. Um, okay. And I say it didn't. I was trying so many different jobs. I tried, uh, I was a bricklayer. That's what I ended up being when I left school because my dad was a bricklayer. I tried truck driving, security, cake salesman, insurance salesman, door-to-door -door book sales. A friend of mine was a stockbroker, and this was in the early 90s now, and they were doing a massive, you know, like about 200 people move from London to Hong Kong, and they had a bunch of trainees that they were taking. So I managed to talk my way in, and my friend on the inside got me into this. So I ended up in Hong Kong as a trainee stockbroker. Now, bear mm -hmm. in mind, I have trouble adding up three and three. So I got there. We did orientation on the Monday, and I got fired on the Tuesday. So I was a stockbroker technically for 24 hours mm -hmm. until I realized I had no idea what was going on. I ended up becoming a doorman. And okay. that was where it kind of started. And I saw rich people. I thought, and I've got to tell you, you often think that, or you don't realize that some of the darkest shit that you're in can sometimes be where the greatest diamond and education is found. Right. And I was now in the Far East, away from my friends, away from my girlfriend, who is now my wife of 35 years. And I have no job. And the only way to be able to make it was I ended up getting a dorm job because, hey, God made me big and ugly. So that's obviously what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to slap people. That was my job. Um, but I suddenly noticed from this, what I thought was my lowest ebb, my lowest chapter, it gave me a, a platform to watch humanity, how rich people handled each other, how people celebrate in a contract, how people looking for a fight. I got to see humanity and I loved psychology. 
-hmm. You know, I just became fascinated with how it worked. Um, so I ended up trying to get to talk to rich people. And because I was the doorman, knowing where the best clubs were. So it started off, I knew where the best clubs were. I'll get you in, give me a hundred bucks to throwing parties, to working for brands like Ferrari and Cartier. And it just exploded. But here was the funny thing. My goal at first was to have a Rolodex of uh, rich people only. And then what I would do is 10 times a month, come up with a reason that I would be near that office. Because this was of a time when people worked in offices. Mm -hmm. And so I would go, hey, Johnny, I'm in your area. And I wouldn't be. I'm in your area Tuesday. Should we grab a coffee? Yeah, Steve. Loves it. And I would literally, you know, try and look all a bit smart, shave a little bit more. And I would turn up. And this is the dumb thing. I would have a coffee with them all the time expecting them to go, Steve, I just love your style. You should sell private jets for me. You should become a yacht broker. You should work for my jewelry firm. You should work for my funding. All the time I expected a job. It was the only time I never asked for something and I expected them to give it to me. Uh -huh. And this went on for about eight years. You know, it went on for a long time. And I kept saying to my wife, you know, bear in mind, I was now living in a penthouse. I had my motorbikes. My wife had her Range Rover. We were doing okay. Mm -hmm. But still, three or four times a month, I was going out, having coffee with these people, going, you're going to offer me a job soon. You go, And then I'd come back to side, babe. And I came back all dejected one day, funny enough, from a jet charter company. And I came back from that jet charter, hoping that they were going to ask me to work for them. Okay? And I said to Claire, I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I... You know, I had a couple of beers with the guy, but he still hasn't offered me a job. And she said, what are you doing this for? <laughs> and I said, well, I need to get a job. And she's like, look where we live. Look how we live. You have a job. You've created it. And she actually made me realize that I had created this concierge firm. That's when we started to take it a bit seriously. And do you know the funny thing is? The second we established a concierge firm, all the people that I've been working for that own jet charters, yacht charters, jewelry, they were like, Steve, how can we work for your company? They wanted to work for me. <laughs> and it was hysterical how it suddenly turned around. But uh, you often don't realize, and I remember this line from McDonald's, uh, the movie, you often don't realize the business you're in. I was in the connection game. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed to connect A to B and make sure there was a value in it that I could charge a fee for. That was my business. Um, whether it be concierge, whether it be luxury lifestyle, whatever, that was the business I was in. As soon as I realized it, I could optimize it, monetize it, and that's, the rest is history. And I have to be honest with you, it wasn't until three years ago when um, I was approached to write a book. And I wrote the book honestly thinking no one would ever read it. And I only did it because I would be able to rub it into my kid's face that I'm now an author. Um, and it was meant as a joke, but it took off. And what I didn't realize was as I was doing my book with my ghostwriter, I would literally say to him, oh, but people always do this. And my ghostwriter would be like, no, nobody does that. That I suddenly realized everyone tries to do the smart idea. They mm -hmm. try to build a CRM, a funnel, a website, a, a pixelation. They focus on all of that before they focus on what is the solution they provide and looking for a client that it solves a problem. If you can solve someone's problem, 
then find two more people you can solve that problem. If you can solve that problem, now you have a business. Then get the website, then get the CRM. But most of the time, I realize that people are asked backwards and they look for the blue pill that's going to answer all the problems before they really know what they're even doing. How long did that take you from the point of you starting to put uh, parties together and events together till that clicked? How many years was that when your wife was like, Steve, you don't need to get a job? 1997, when I was contracted by Ferrari to operate the largest party in Monaco to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Ferrari. Oh, wow. You know, I'm now yeah. working for the largest brand in the planet where people that are coming in were at the time Liz Hurley and Hugh Grant that was like, the coolest couple in the world at that time. Uh -huh. If you remember the Versace safety pin dress, mm. it was that period. Okay. We had Arnold Schwarzenegger in there because it was during the period of the Terminators. Mm -hmm. So I had the biggest celebrities on the planet. I also had kings and queens on my yacht. And it was at that point, I'm like, I've got a business here. I, I actually have like so-and-so's number that I can text, you know, <laughs> with my little Motorola flip phone. Right. Um, it was a very, very weird, uh, weird time. But yeah, it took me about seven years before I suddenly realized I had something. And the funny thing is, here's another funny thing. I always had this little thing that I used to give you passwords to get into my parties. Uh -huh. So that's how Bluefish came up. Because one of the passwords was, finish this sentence, one fish, two fish, red fish. So people would come up to the door of my party and go, Bluefish, and we'd let them in. Okay. And if they didn't say Bluefish, we'd turn them away. Uh -huh. Okay. And we noticed even then, if you control who comes through your front door, you remove 99% of the problems once they're inside. So That's if they're an point. arsehole at the door, they're going to be an arsehole inside. Mm. So that password actually got rid of a lot of arseholes. But people started contacting us going, hey, are you that Bluefish company? And I'd be like, no, 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 we're not. And we had this name of a company called Trianon. Now, okay. <laughs> a friend of mine came up with this name. The Trianon is the court of the Greek gods when they can't make a decision. So in Greek uh, mythology, it's the last say on everything. Okay. How precocious is that? So we called <laughs> our company Trianon, and people would phone us up going, is that Bluefish? And we'd be like, no, I don't know who they are, and hang up. Uh -huh. And it was my PA that once said to me, you know that's you? And I'm like, how the hell could it be? She's like, your password. And we were like, ah. And people have been hearing the password and thought that's what the name of the company was. We became Bluefish that day. <laughs> and thus you are the brand that you are now. Very cool. Um, you know, I think this is something that um, a lot of entrepreneurs overlook, but maybe not understand because you have definitely, it seems like a, a very um, like kind of outgoing personality. Like you would be good at mm -hmm. um, connecting with, you know, the people that you want to connect with. Um, I've always been a connector too. Like I really enjoy going and meet the people that I want to meet, talking with them, you know, having a good time with them, making events. So, but I see a lot of entrepreneurs, I see a lot of people in the, the hustle out there trying to get, grow their businesses, but they just don't understand that social capital, that social currency. Um, maybe because they're more introverted and they have a tech business, maybe because, um, who knows, they just have never been taught the process of understanding and, and connecting with people. What, what would you say to those people out there that um, maybe don't understand the importance of that social capital that you and I understand um, clearly? 
Well, you're right. It is a social capital and it can be taught. But the biggest thing that needs to be noted out of the conversation you just made was the distinction of meeting people that we want to meet. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't go to networking events. Um, I don't go to after parties because I freaking hate them. I don't want to be stood there going, hi, how are you? What did you watch on Netflix? Because I couldn't give a fuck. I don't care. I don't want to have that conversation. I want to go to an event because someone's at that event that I want to strike a conversation up on because I heard him on a podcast. I read that book. I saw him in my feed and I want to engage in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm also not built warm and fuzzy to look all cuddly. So I want, I go into an event knowing why I'm there. I've been to a lot of networking events trying to change, but I don't like to be a collector. And we all see those collectors they're the guys that go to a network event and they go, hey, give me a card. And you give them the card and they're off to the next person. And they think as long as they've achieved 50 business cards, hey, it was a good night. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. For me, I want to be able to walk into an event because you're there. Jesse Elder's there. You know, one of my one of our buddies is there. Want to get in there, walk up to him and have a conversation. And I want to be there with purpose. Right. That's the only thing I want to be able to do. So it doesn't matter if you're introvert or extrovert. And this may be a bit of a shock to people, but I'm actually quite an introvert. I live up in the hills. I ride motorcycles. I barbecue. I do. I don't go out much unless I'm paid to be there. I'm either paid to be there or it's my event. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's really what I do. I'm not, I'm not a real social hound unless I know the people in my circle. And I'm very slow, sadly, to bring people into my circle. So from an introvert's perspective, move with purpose. If you've got, and you, you brought up tech, you know, if you've got a product, doesn't matter how good your product is, if no one knows about it or buying it, you're still broke. Right. Okay. So you've got to learn the art of communication. If you're really shit at it, partner with someone that's not. But as much as splitting the atom is a skill set, open heart surgery is a skill set, driving a truck, a spaceship, a yacht is a skill set, communication is a skill set. It's not there just because you can talk. And I've said to people on Clubhouse, just because you can speak in Clubhouse does not mean you should. Right. Understand that communication is a skill set. It's got a benefit that is that it's going to. Yeah. Very, very good point. This is one thing that came up for me, Steve, is uh, in creating a business like this, how do you know how to price out events? You know, somebody calls you up and says, Steve, I want to go to space or goes to the bottom of the ocean. Um, is this a process like you say, hang on, let me see if I can do it and then start to calculate what it would cost and then give a price? Or or what's the process like for you? So there were three steps, mm-hmm. okay? Step one, do I want to do it with you? You know, do I want you to be a client? Because I could take a lot of money. I worked for Elton John for eight years. I could take a lot of money to stick a real prick next to Elton John make a lot of money from that day. And then they would never take an acceptance from me ever again. Right. Okay. So do I want to implode this relationship by delivering an arsehole just because I made 50 K? Mm-hmm. I think not. You know, I'd rather make 40 K 20 times, you know, it just made sense. So the first step is, do I want to deal with this person? Second uh, question is, do I ever want to get to a point where I'm arguing with them over the invoice? So the conversations would be, hey, I want to do X. 
Look at the client. Do I want to work with the client? Don't look at the checkbook. Look at the client. Do I want to deal with that person time and time again? Yeah, I do. Hey, Johnny, I want to work with you. That's great. I want to know that you want to know that I can get it done. I want to know that you want to get it done. 50 grand goes in this account and then I'll start working. I always had a wired retainer. Okay. 50 grand, 75 grand, 150 grand. If I can't get it done, the money goes back, but at least it'll validate to me that A, you're good for the money and B, I can go to whoever I'm talking to going, Hey, we've already got good faith change sitting in the account. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I would charge them a retainer first. That's not the price. That's the retainer. Okay. Okay. So then you calculate, okay, not how long does it take you to do it? You know, how long would it take me to reach out to Alton John's crew? Two nanoseconds. How long would it take me to reach out to Cartier, Ferrari, any of the companies and millionaires, billionaires and royalty that I've dealt with? I could do half of them by a text. Right. So are you therefore going to expect me to charge you for the three seconds it takes to me to text them? Or the 13 years it's taken me to build up the relationship to get them to respond. Right. And that's where people get asked about face. You're not charging people for what you're doing. You're, cha you're charging them for the time that it's taking you to become competent at what you do. Because anything I do, you, we don't know each other very well, but there's not a thing that I do that I don't guarantee that you couldn't. You absolutely could. But do you want to put the 30 years in to do it? Right. And, hey, if you're 50 years old, do you have 30 years to put into it? <laughs> Probably you know? not. So you, you've got to consider that you are paying for the time I save you building up the relationship to be able to get to do what you want to do. Okay? Absolutely. You're paying me for that time it built me up to have the credibility. And that's what I charge on. So you, you may get someone that you can knock something out in two seconds. And there's been those times where I've just texted someone, you know, while having coffee, I uh, got someone who wants to do this. What do you think about this? I'm going to charge them X, Y, Z, and I'm going to shove a big donation in your charity. Would that work for you? Yes, Steve, let's do it. Great, bingo. Coffee's not even poured. Uh -huh. I'm going to charge them 60 seconds for that. You know? Oh, by the way, it took me 60 seconds, so what do you think? 250 bucks? <laughs> or am I going to charge them $150,000 because there's no hope in hell they could be anywhere in that person's field right. of, of you without me. Right. That's what I'm going to charge them. On. Besides money, Steve, what is that? What are the qualities in a person you look for to work with? Like somebody comes to you and you say, the first step is, do I want to work with you? What, what are the things you look for in that person that makes you think, okay, I can work with this individual. I can connect them and make any experience happen that he wants to have. Um, the why. Okay. And I'd, I'd like to tell you a story if I have your permission. Absolutely good, sir. So I told you before, I've already dropped the name out on John. I was working for that Oscar party in Hollywood where we had every kind of A-lister you can think about. So we had a phone call come into our office one day and one of the team took it and forwarded it through to me. And she said, look, I want you to take this call. And I said, why? And she said, well, he wants to meet Sir Elton John. So I went, yeah, okay, then yeah, let me have it. That's my relationship, so put it through. Guy comes through the phone. He's a New Yorker, so he's, he's abrupt and short. And of course, hey, fine with that, no problem. He's like, yeah, hey, I want to meet uh, Sir Elton John. I went, hey, that's fantastic, great. Yeah, why do you want to do that? Well, uh, he's, uh, he's an icon, he's a legend. Um, 
you, you know who he is just by one name, Elton. Um, yeah, he's been around forever. He's one of the last superstars. He's going to die soon. I want to get a picture and stick it on my desk. All right. Anything else? No. Um, no, that's it. So I went, hey, great, fantastic. Uh, let me see what I can do and I'll come back to you. Didn't ask his name, didn't ask his phone number, didn't ask his email because that was not a person I wanted to deal with. Mm. Okay. Way too superficial. If you re listen to that, all he wanted was that picture on his desk to show off to anyone that came into his room. Right. Too shallow. A month later, and now we're about six weeks away from Sir Elton John's party. Another call comes into the office, and um, one of the team contacts me. She said, uh, Steve, you know, we, we got someone on the phone. He's a New Yorker, not, a, not the same guy, but I'm wondering if he's got something to do with the other guy because you never went back to him, and maybe he's going through a friend. Can you handle it? Yep, put him through. So I was already expecting to tell the guy, go away. So guy comes on the phone and says, hey, how you doing? I said, hey, I'm good. You know, uh, what do you need? He said, I want to meet Samuel and John. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Why? He's like, well, you know, the guy's a superstar. He's an icon. He's a basically went through pretty much the same as what the first guy did. You know, he went, oh, he's an icon. He's a, he's a legend. Um, there's things. Now, thankfully, he didn't say he's going to die soon, which is what the first guy did. And I was really <laughs> concerned what this guy had planned. Right. But the guy went through. He's a legend. He's an icon. He's a superstar. Everyone knows him by his uh, by one name, Elton. And there's things. It was the way it dropped off at the end. So I said to him, what thing? And I lowered my voice. I mean, have you ever come across Chris Voss yet? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Chris taught me to um, get into my midnight DJ voice. So if someone asks you for something, and they're all kind of like, hey, I want to do this. Max it with that enthusiasm. And go, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. When should we do it? Drop your tone okay. and see if they follow. Okay. So this guy went, there's things. And I went, what things? In my best midnight DJ voice, you know, what things? And then he goes quiet and he says, when I was a kid, my dad used to drive me to school. And then he would pick me up and drive me back from school. Every day, all the way up until high school, until I got a car. My mum never did. It was my dad's thing. To school and back from school. He said, the first car we had had a cassette deck. And in the cassette, in the car was a cassette. And it was jammed. And it was Sir Elton John's greatest hits. And he would sing Elton John all the way to school. And then as I got into that, into the car on the way, it'd sing Elton John all the way back. We would sing our lungs out. And then we got a new car. And this one had a CD player in it. So he thought it'd be funny to get Elton John's greatest hits on CD. And we would sing all the way to school and all the way back from school. And this went into high school where I could not stand my dad singing, but that didn't deter him. He would sing all the way there and all the way. But I would get out of the car and slam the door quickly so no one could hear Elton John playing. Mm -hmm. And I would jump in the car and quickly close it and then stare out of the window in disgust. And I used to say to my mom, will you stop him singing all the way to school? Elton, I don't want to hear it anymore. So now my dad died about 20 years ago. I'll be driving my wife out. I'll be going for a meeting. I'll be running down to pick up a sandwich, dropping the kids off somewhere. And the radio will be on. 
And every now and then Elton John would come on. But for the next three minutes of that song, my dad sat next to me singing his lungs out and I could do nothing more than smile. I want to thank Elton for bringing my dad back to me for random three minutes every now and then. Now that was the why. Yeah. That I could work with. So we hooked it up. We got him over to uh, LA. We got him to meet Sir Elton John. I could not hear the conversation as those two leaned into each other to speak on this story because of all the music of the party. But I certainly knew when it got to the punchline as I saw each person well up with tears in their eyes. Wow. Now that you can work with. And if you notice, none of that had anything to do with the price tag. Right. The price tag was irrelevant now because quite simply, it had demonstrated the value of what was necessarily to be done. Real quick, did you ever find out if that guy had a connection with the other guy? Like you guys originally Oh, no, they thought didn't. They I didn't. actually did actually. Um, no, they didn't. I actually spoke to him when he got to LA and I went, here's a funny story. You know, and I said, this guy phoned, he had nothing. He was like, no, no, you could just tell as well by the tone. Once you got over the bravado, because you see, here's, here's the thing, especially with the word Amazon, okay? Mm-hmm. We're in a transactional society. You want something, you push a button. If you think you've built up a relationship with Amazon, phone them up tomorrow and go, hey, I think I'm changing <laughs> toilet roll. What toilet roll shall I get? Right. You'll never get an answer. We're in a transactional society. So never give a client what they ask for Give them what they lust and desire. And you're only going to be able to get there by asking the question, why? Right. So uh, real quick, I, I have to ask you about your storytelling abilities because I noticed the process that you just told this story was very professional where you were very excited and telling a story about the guy in New York, the first guy, and then the second guy. And then, like you said, you drop into your midnight DJ voice and you kind of did that when you were talking about this guy's why. I'm curious, have you ever studied storytelling or is this something that's kind of natural to you or has you picked it up along the way? Uh, both. I'm an Irish uh, East London boy. I, uh, the, so there I, you go. <laughs> I, I think we could sell mushrooms to anybody. Um, and so I think we're given the gift of the gab there. You know, EastEnders are known for like just pulling a barrel up and just selling whatever's in it. Um, so I think I had a little bit of that, you know, cockney cockiness in me. Uh-huh. But along the way, my my business has allowed me to to hang around like the Tony Robbins, the Jay Abrahams, the John Weldons of this world and learn how to do it. So over the years and now because of the book and literally speaking worldwide and throwing my events and I'm doing it all the time now, I look on it further to breed my skill set. Because again, as I said, I don't think I wanted to communicate with people, but I understood the necessity of it. Mm-hmm. So it is a skill set, just like riding a motorcycle, doing martial arts. It's all a skill set. And you need to understand it's a skill set in order to become better at it. Even bloody cooking at night, everything is a skill set. I realized that my comfort, my lifestyle, my home, my mortgage, my bank account, everything was tied to my ability to communicate. If that means I've got to put a story in it to help capture the emotion or the moment, then I'm going to focus on how to do that delivery. So over the years, I have been very fortunate to call a lot of these people friends that have actually taught me how to do it. And they've gone, I've literally just done something. They've gone, Steve, why don't you tell that story up on set? Why don't you do that? How about this? Or don't use that picture. Don't do that. 
And I've gone, okay, you know better than me. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I've increased it. It's like, you know, we spoke about Jesse Elder. It's no good getting instruction from someone that's better at you and then ignoring it. Yeah. That makes no sense to me. So over the years, I would say that I've definitely got better at the art of uh, definitely speaking on stage um, and definitely being able to tell stories. So for the way uh, the way that I understand it, you've, you've never really spent money on traditional marketing, right? It's always been word of mouth. Is that correct? Never marketed. Never had a, we, did, we didn't have a website for uh, 12 of the 25 years of the wow. concierge firm. Okay. Uh, and here was the dumb thing. True story. When we did launch the, uh, the concierge firm, we forgot to put a contact page on there. So there was no email <laughs> or phone number because we were all word of mouth. Um, and that, that worked very, very well for us. And now within my coaching uh, platform, different to speaking because bureaus get involved. But in my coaching program, you know, people literally have to commit to get involved with me. So, mm-hmm. no, I'm, I'm, I'm very heavily referral based. So did you ever have a time then, like, I love the idea of word of mouth businesses. Um, did you ever have a time that the business kind of slowed up and you thought to yourself, okay, I've got to get out there and start hustling again or connecting again to, to pick up or has it always been pretty consistent for you? Um, I would say I'm a hustler. Um, right. I would say I, I'm on a, I'm on a podcast with you today. We're having a chat people that I've never met before that listen to you and now listening to me, most of them can't understand what the fuck I'm saying, but you know, there may be, <laughs> there may be one person out there that goes, Oh, I, I kind of get this guy. And he may end up coming into my universe somehow. Right. Um, but I believe, uh, and you'll also notice I've not been sitting here going, well, funny enough, I've got a 12 step course on that. And you know, if you, <laughs> that's no, if there is something that resonates, you'll find me. That's the way I've always been. But I'm hustling now. I'm here to help your crowd uh, do something that they can. Look at this. Look at my story. Look at me and go, well, hang on a minute. There's a guy that was kicked out of school at the age of 15. No formal education. But he's lectured at Harvard and the Pentagon twice now. Mm-hmm. If he can do it, I can. Which is exactly the way it should be. So, no, I never had any formal. I just realized that and Jay Abraham, who happens to be a neighbor of mine now, um, a guy that I revered is now a neighbor and a close friend. He turned around to me one day and he said, you know, you have a greater eye can than an IQ. And I just, I loved it. So uh-huh. I've always owned it. And if I could get a t-shirt made, it'd be a black t-shirt. But if I could get it on a t-shirt, I would, I would have that done in a heartbeat. I love that, man. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, somebody I actually heard a story that somebody asked you, uh, to to help them or to to give them experience to detonate a nuclear bomb is that true (laughs) we had uh, so people say to me things like you know has there any been ever anything that you've never been able to do Uh and the cocky answer is no and the reason there's never been anything that i haven't been able to do is because if you rewind this i've never gone for what the person asked me to do So if the guy said he wanted a room, I'm going to try and get the White House. And I may Mm -hmm. fail, but then I'll end up getting a massive convention center or a massive hall or a stadium. I always go for way beyond what the client asks me for, Mm. allowing myself those points of failure to then get something in excess of what he first requested. So that I've never failed at any request I've ever been given. 
because I never tried to achieve it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, has there been anyone that I've ever refused? And I told you right at the beginning, I go for the person, not the checkbook. Right. We had this guy quite simply contact me uh, through a referral who was stunned when he heard the request that the other guy had made. And he literally just said to me, he said, I want to detonate a nuclear warhead. <laughs> and I said, you, you want to what? This was in early 2000. Uh -huh. And uh, he said, yeah. He said, I just want to push a button on the most powerful weapon in the world. And I said to him, we're not even going to do it. Now, I guarantee I could pull it off. I could contact some people in Korea. I'd let him push it off. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, we just said, we're not doing it. We're not touching it. And uh, we walked away from it. Well, I, thank you for that, <laughs> because what what kind that just it strikes me what kind of individual would actually want to do that? Like, where are they at in their life and in, yeah. in their mind that they were like, oh, I just want to blow up a nuclear warhead like that? Hey, if it had been today in the world that we're in today, maybe I'd be making phone calls to certain people, but um, <laughs> you know, to get a watch on this guy. But this was back in early two thousands when we still thought the world was all fluffy and friendly. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you made the real wise decision. I think you know that. Uh, yeah. is, there, is there any dream experience of yours that you want to put together for somebody that you always thought, like, I hope somebody calls me up to see if I can make that happen one day because I would really like to make that happen. But you just haven't had time to make that happen or no requests before. I am startled at the room's that I've been in with the people that I've been. I've walked through SpaceX with Elon Musk. I've sang with Andrea Bocelli. I've played drums with Guns N' Roses. I've driven a Formula One car with Ferrari. I've done stuff and I still sit here and go, how the hell did I do that? Mm -hmm. You know, um, when all I really want to do is to ride my motorcycle through the hills and to pour the perfect old fashioned. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, I've never really had, I had aspirations of a life that I chose. Mm -hmm. I remember I went through a period, like I bought a Ferrari. In fact, I bought three. Um, I had expensive watches. I had tailor-made suits. You can't tell your, you can't tell yourself what it's going to do to your life until you have those things. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing was, I grew up riding motorcycles in a black t-shirt and jeans now I've played with all those things. I've realized I'm happiest riding a motorcycle in a black t-shirt and jeans. jeans. Yeah. So I, I, I'm very fortunate, very blessed that my life became what I wanted it to be rather than what it was given to me. And that's been a benefit. So regarding experiences, absolutely not. Um, I hope I meet good people. I constantly like to challenge myself. I read, I try different things. Um, I love working with entrepreneurs now because my role from the concierge firm, which I kind of finished two years ago, mm -hmm. has been now to, instead of spending billionaires' money, giving them interesting cocktail stories, I'm now educating, invigorating, and hopefully motivating entrepreneurs to create their own stories and to work with the clients that they want and not that they get. So yeah. my challenge has changed, but my challenge is in helping them and getting them into a position. And I really enjoy that at the moment. And I will say I'm enjoying life. But I have one goal. I have one goal in life. And my goal is to die. And to go up to hopefully the pearly gates, if my wife puts a good word in. And at the gates is going to be St. Peter. 
he's going to have an old fashioned in his hand and he's going to hand it to me. And he's going to go, well, you had some fun, didn't you? <laughs> That's it. That's my goal. That's a good way to go out, man. That's a good goal. All I want. <laughs> All I want. You have, I think it's a chapter or a quote in your book that talks, that says there's a thin line between patience and compliance. And that really stood out to me. And I'm curious if you don't mind elaborating on that more, because, um, I, I like that and I'm learning more about both of these, um, I guess you could say the virtue of patience, but also the understanding of compliance more and more as I grow. But I'm curious, like what, the, what does that mean to you? I think a lot of people will settle. And so when they settle, no matter how passionate you are about something, no matter how um, energetic you are to help the person, you can't always force the person to change for that good. Okay. So you have to learn how to be patient and how to help them get around to making the decision of what's best for them that you've laid out. For. You've almost kind of got to lay the seeds like a good movie, you know, so that people get to the finale that you had already pretty pre-set up for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the trouble with compliance and settling, and it, it's got different different sides, is that people settle for what they think is achievable. Now, if you haven't gone for anything big in your life, how do you know what's achievable? You know, um, we are we are a species that has to break records, but there's so many times that we have to break them in our heads first. We have to realize that 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 barrier is only there because we installed it or worse. Our mum and dad or our best friends installed that level. You know, I know nothing about your past, but what are you, 30? How old are you? I'm 40. Bastard. All right, so you're 40 <laughs> years old looking 30, so obviously the juice is working. Uh, but you came from a life that Instagram didn't exist to tell you how inadequate yours was. True. So you got served all of these parameters of kind of like, don't be selfish, you know, don't overextend, mm -hmm. you know, oh, go for it, but only within a certain amount. Don't risk everything, or you've got to get a job and then work your job up and then get a pension and retire when you're 60 and settle for that. We had all of those because that's all they knew. Mm -hmm. You know, from only two generations prior to me, they had a loaf of bread during the world war. Right. And then your parents were, well, they were the boomer kids from everyone coming back from, they were just happy. There wasn't a world war. Yeah. We've been given the chance now to actually go for something. And we were on that cusp of kind of like old school, new school. Now everyone just knows what the new school is. So I think that you've got to understand what the mentality, what, what are they going for? What are the parameters that they've installed? What is hereditary that you need to get in there and remove? And how can you lay the seeds to get them to go to where they need to be? And it is a thin line that you're stepping on between that settling, the compliance, the patience, but you've got to know where is the route? What is the point? what's moving the needle and get them to go for something that actually has and can create impact for them. Steve, just a couple more questions and we'll wrap up here. Um, if you had to start over with uh, back at point zero, what would you do differently? Nothing. Um, I've, I've failed so many times that we could talk for months. Uh -huh. 
But isn't that what has kind of gotten me to where I am? You know, my education didn't come from being successful. It came from all the times that I wasn't. And the big thing that I suddenly remember, I was in a room full of some amazing people, uh, some amazing business icons. And it suddenly struck me as I was at the bar that I was in a room full of failures. And I was actually having a conversation with Jean-Paul de Jouria, the guy from Patron and Paul Mitchell. And I suddenly realized that everyone in this room was a failure. Mm-hmm. But they allowed those failures to refine them and not define them. And that was my big aha moment. I realized that while everyone does something and they lose money, they get sued, they fall over, it fails, it doesn't get enough buyers, and they go, oh my God, they lean back. Successful people lean in Mm -hmm. and go, where did it go wrong? How come it never got the pickup it wanted? How come it never got the traction? And they get, they, they realize that in that corpse of a company, that corpse of a moment, is where all the diamonds are that can make sure they go forward, where they can prosper. All the learning lessons are in how they got a smile. You're a fighter. You don't learn how to become a good fighter by never getting hit. Right. You get hit, and that is the moment you realize, my God's not as good as it should have been. <laughs> that's right. when you learn. Uh-huh. And so that, that's what I did. I realized that through my life, someone asked me a question years ago, similar to that question, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? The only thing I would tell him was to stay off the shit whiskey because it'll rot your guts. <laughs> That's the only thing. Why would I save? Why would I remove those moments of what quite simply are empowerment? Because anyone can make money. Okay. If you do and you lose it, you'll never le- lose the lessons on how you made it. So I've lost money many, many times when I'm empowered to know how to make money. Yeah. So why miss out on some on all those kind of things? That's why you see so many lottery winners lose all their money. Right. Right. Within three years, right? 85% of them. It's pretty quick. Yeah. Divorce, depression, because they don't know. They didn't know. They didn't carry the empowerment to get to where it was. Right. Steve, I think we're going to wrap up there, man. I want to say uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. If the, the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place they can do that at? Oh, Christ, I'm easier to get hold of than COVID. Um, if you look up <laughs> Steve, Steve D. Sims, that's D for dashing, Sims, uh-huh. S-I-M-S. There's only one M in Sims. You can find me, Steve D. Sims, on Instagram. I have a free Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. Uh Or you can come and converse with me and my inner circle at simsdistillery.com. There you go. Nice. There we go. You have a new podcast out too, right? Steve's uh, The Art of Making Things Happen, right? Yeah, that's actually been out for about a year and a half now. The Art of Making Things Happen. We've had uh, prostitutes, priests, (laughs) lifers, business icons, athletes. I get to, you know, just, and that's the fun of being a podcast host, I get to interview interesting people that do things differently so when the guy comes over that is a icon in seo and click funnels no that's not the guy i put on my podcast but if you've run the multi-million dollar drug industry that's the guy i'm that's in the guy you want <laughs> cool 
Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a, a very enjoyable, and I loved listening to your stories. It's been a pleasure, man. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.